Collections with showrooms at Lake Juan Popback, downtown Honesdale, and Milford, PA. Van Gorders Furniture brings the outdoors inside. VanGorders.com. WJFF Jeffersonville, W233AH Monticello, Public Radio for the Catskills, Northeast Pennsylvania. We're keeping you connected right here on Radio Catskill. Coming up, we have a special spring edition of Trailer Talk. Uh, you may have heard our spring fun drive starts tomorrow night. It's not happening yet. It starts tomorrow night, but you can make a contribution at any time, and every contribution we get before the drive will help make the drive that much shorter, and we are hoping to keep it a short one this spring so we can enjoy the spring more than we enjoy the spring fun drive. So if you're interested in helping us out pre-gaming this before we kick it off about this time tomorrow night, well, you can make a contribution right now at WJFFradio.org. That's WJFFradio.org. .org. Okay, stay tuned. Coming right up, it's Trailer Talk. Support for WJFF Radio Catskill comes from the River Reporter newspaper in Narrowsburg, New York, riverreporter.com. From the Women's Health Center in Honesdale, Hamlin, Waymart, Carbondale, and Lords Valley in Pennsylvania. Physicians and certified midwives who deliver. The Women's Health Center is a Wayne Memorial Community Health Center. WMH.org. And from listener donations at WJFFradio.org. Welcome to Sabrina Artel's Trailer Talk. I'll bring you all kinds of stories from all kinds of people. Whether it's a live public conversation and we're speaking from the kitchen table of my 1965 Beeline Travel Trailer, from the studios or on the streets, please sit back and enjoy the conversation right here this time every week. I want to welcome all of you to this virtual episode of Trailer Talk. Please imagine yourselves coming inside the trailer. And my guests and I, we're sitting around a kitchen table. We've got some lawn chairs outside. It's a gorgeous spring day. I want to welcome my guest, Farmer Greg Swartz. He has been farming in the upper Delaware River Valley region of Pennsylvania and New York since 2000. And he founded Willow Wisp Organic Farm in Damascus, Pennsylvania with his wife, Tannis Kowalchuk. I want to welcome you to this episode, Greg. Thank you, Sabrina. Pleasure to be here. Always my pleasure to speak with you. And I wanted to have this conversation because it is just spring. And things are in motion. There's a lot of action going on. And I wanted to speak to you about what that means for you as a farmer. You have an organic farm. And I'd love for you to share with us what you grow, why you grow it, the way that they taste, the way that they look, watermelon radishes Uh and shishito peppers and many, many more things that I'm mentioning I'm wanting to talk to you about why you farm and lessons from this pandemic year, lessons about our food systems, why local food, what does this mean? How do people have access? Why don't we start with a little bit about the farm and then why I farm? Um, so Willow Wisp Organic Farm is, uh, as you mentioned, in, uh, in Damascus, Pennsylvania, in Wayne County. We are currently growing about 25 acres of certified organic vegetables, herbs, and cut flowers. And we grow a very big diversity of all of those things, somewhere around 45 different vegetable crops, several dozen culinary herbs, uh, several dozen varieties of cut flowers. The reason for that diversity is uh, touches on many, many things, one of which is the reason to farm, which is to eat well. The importance of diversity in our diet can't be overstated. Also, the importance of enjoying food can't be overstated. And part of the enjoyment of food is eating seasonally and eating this broad mix of of vegetables um, that all relate to the season. There's probably a nutritional and health aspect to eating seasonally, which which is important. But I think even more than that, it's, it's just pure enjoyment of it. Eating the thing when it's its season, um, you know, you can't beat it flavor-wise and, and just being connected to the, the cycles and timing of, of nature is, uh, it's, it's, yeah, it's probably one of the most enjoyable parts of it. 
And how does what you're describing connect to the nutrients in the food and its impact on us? I'm going to answer that by talking about soil. The way that nutrients end up in the vegetable, right? You have a plant growing in the soil. And so the plant is imbibing nutrients from the soil at the same time that it's going through one of the the most important processes on on planet Earth known as photosynthesis. So the plant is capturing solar energy to drive the whole biological process. But at the same time, the plant is taking up nutrients from the soil. The best way for that plant to be able to take up those nutrients is if the soil itself is healthy. Our primary job as organic farmers is to create healthy soil. The byproduct is a healthy crop. So, so much of our focus is on that idea of soil. And what does that mean? Uh, Soil is alive. When you pick up a handful of healthy soil, on average, there's more than 1 billion, with a B, living organisms in that handful of soil. So that is everything from bacteria to fungi to nematodes to arthropods to earthworms. And the way in which all of those organisms interact, that cycle of life is what makes nutrients available to plants. Furthermore, that life interacts with the physical, the physical qualities of soil too, right? The bacteria and fungi work on mineral components in the soil. And all of those things working in harmony is what gives you healthy soil that allows those nutrients to then be taken up by the plant. You know, that's the simple version of it. But it, it is the fundamental thing is to acknowledge the fact that soil is alive and that the best way to end up with nutrient-dense crops is to really think a lot about that life in the soil. And then the other benefit Maybe it's a side benefit. Maybe it's the first benefit. I'm not sure. But flavor and nutrition are closely related. You know, so when something tastes good, when there's deep flavor, that means also that it has a high density of nutrients. Does the location of your farm factor into this nutrient-rich soil? Yeah, so geography is certainly yeah. important, right? That it, that affects which crops you grow and and planting dates for those crops. The native soil itself affects that. There are scores of different types of soils. One can can approach those soils and try to improve them through many different ways, but you can't change its fundamental nature. So for example, there is some soil that is definitely not suited to growing vegetables. There's some soil that is not suited to growing apple trees. Etc. So you, you want to match the soil or match your crop with the type of soil that you have. And, you know, that's one interesting thing about thinking about the, the, the food production in our region. We actually don't have a lot of high quality vegetable soil. You know, our, our area predominantly is an excellent place to grow grass. You know, when you look at the overall acreage, it's really more, more about growing good grass. But we're fortunate enough to have really excellent bottomland soil along the river that is ideally suited to to vegetable production, which is why we're here. It was not by accident. <laughs> so that's the Delaware River that you're describing. Yes. Yeah. So you chose the location because you are adjacent to the Delaware River? Well, we chose it because the soil that is located right that's adjacent to the to the river is an you know alluvial floodplain, which means that it is a very fine sandy loam. Uh, very deep uh, topsoil and second soil horizon, um, which makes it perfectly suited to vegetables. You know, you go, you know, to the other side of uh, of the road from where our farm is, and it's you know rocky and steep and wooded. That alluvial floodplain soil is uh, is really rare in this area, and it's uh, and it's perfect for vegetables. Greg, can you take us onto your farm for a moment? What would we be looking at? What would we see? Well, the farm uh, sits right along the Delaware River. We have about a, a half mile frontage on the river. The field itself is raised above the river. So it's uh, about 15 feet above average river height, which means that it is not very prone to flooding. It will, it will flood in catastrophic events. The last flood being uh, 
2006 in this area was was dramatic and there was water in the field but otherwise we're sitting above the river and so flooding is not generally a concern we are tucked along the base of a of a hill that borders river road that goes along the uh, along the farm and so you look up that beautiful slope to these amazing rock ledges and a forested area you look out along the tree line along the river and past that across the Delaware River, which is uh, New York State from here. And so we have this majestic river valley with hills climbing up from the river valley. And no matter which direction you're looking, it's, uh, it's absolutely beautiful. And then you look closer to where you are on the farm and you see that this, there's this huge, wide open, flat field uh, with beautiful soil and the perfect exposure to the sun we're wide open with no no trees and the other part i guess about the location and and the farm is that being along the river we have access to water for irrigation and not just any water but uh, you know really high quality water from the river a very important river that provides drinking water for multiple states and many millions of people. So as you say, very high quality water. So what is happening right now? We're in early spring. We're just at the start of April. The beginning of spring, we're starting to hear lots of uh, lots of noises out there from birds and life is popping up. Some of the perennial crops in the field, you know, are starting to uh, wake up as the days get longer and the soil temperature rises. We have not started anything in the field yet. You know, we are uh, probably a week or two away from the from the first tillage in the field. But uh, green, the greenhouse really is the the most busy place on the farm right now. So what what's happening in the greenhouse right now? Oh, name something. It's happening. Okay, uh, tell tell us. So what what's so, happening? What kinds of vegetables are growing? How big are they? And then what happens next? Sure. So we have we have two different kinds of greenhouses here. Uh, one is a year round greenhouse that is heated and has ventilation, and we have three of those that cover a little under uh, a third of an acre. We start all of our own plants on the farm and we start them in the greenhouse, in trays, in a really high quality potting soil. And then those get then transplanted into the field. And so we grow, I've actually never done the actual math, but but somewhere on the order of uh, a couple hundred thousand plants a year that come from that greenhouse out into the field. And so right now, the greenhouse is uh, about 80% full of plants, and we're just about to run out of room. And so we're hoping the weather warms up and so that we can start planting outside. One section uh, includes a, a whole nice mix of perennial herbs. So we have French tarragon, thyme, sage, rosemary, marjoram, oregano. And then we also have some vegetables growing, which right at this moment include lettuce, baby carrots, arugula, bok choy, mustard spinach, and Japanese turnips. And those we all planted uh, in March, and those will be, we'll start picking those in about two to three weeks, and that will be the the first crop of of the season. I love those Japanese turnips. They're so delicious. (laughs) What kinds of lettuce do you grow? In the greenhouse, we focus on one type of lettuce. Uh, It's known as, uh, as little jet, which is a miniature sized head. Uh, we do a red one and a green one, and there are these kind of compact, dense, delicious, crunchy spring flavor bombs. Mm. How does your farming and the mission of Willow Wisp Organic Farm, how is that connecting to access for people to have access to this nutrient-dense organic produce And also, how is it connecting to what happened during the pandemic and some lessons that perhaps you learned? Food access is a very tricky one. The way in which our country thinks about the value of food is deeply broken. As the industrialized nation that spends the smallest percentage of our overall household budgets on food, we do not value food. So we have a very strong belief in this country that food should be cheap. And that is a cultural belief that was actually 
you know, I believe seeded and then and then promulgated by the federal government through lots of different subsidy systems and other agricultural programs that really has built in this expectation that food should be consistent supply available all the time and always cheap. Now, the problem with that is that the price that we pay at the grocery store is not the true price of the food because of that subsidy system. So when you look at what the federal government spends on subsidies, you have to realize that that the the funding for those subsidies, of course, comes from tax dollars. So we are paying more for that food than what the sticker price at the grocery store is. That's important when you start looking at the pricing of food from when you're buying directly from farmers. My products are always more expensive than the grocery store. The biggest thing is that we do not receive any subsidies. The cost of producing food is related to how you grow it. So growing organically, having 20% of the farm fallow every year, uh, spending a lot of time managing the soil that in, in the short term does not become monetized. It's a, it's a long-term project. And also believing that we should pay our team a living wage. All of those things mean that our price is more expensive. So I went on that little, that little path of, of yeah. price because you asked about access. It is challenging for some people to see our prices, people that have limited economic means, and see our prices, and they're turned off by it because it is so much more expensive than the grocery store. That has always been something of our challenge. So, Greg, thank you for explaining that. So it is a challenge, and it's also a challenge because I know that there are so many people of limited means And there's such food scarcity in our region, certainly around the country, but it was exposed dramatically and devastatingly during the pandemic in our region. So what do we do? I know that you care about these issues. Yeah. So this is something we've thought about and talked about for a long time. But then last year, things changed in a a good way. Right. So we saw so many people struggling with getting food. The food pantries in our region responded accordingly. They bumped up the number of pantries that they were doing per month. My wife, Tannis, got involved with the Wayne County Group very early on last year. Is I think in April, uh, she reached out and tried to understand what the mechanics and landscape of the food pantries were in Wayne County. She got involved in trying to help organize more food pantries. We started in the early days of last season, we started donating product to those food pantries. And these pantries were both through the Wayne County, uh, the government, and then also the Cooperage in Honesdale really stepped up to the plate to start doing food distribution themselves, which was not something that was in their kind of programming before that. And they really did a great job. So as a result of Tannis kind of making those connections and then we making the decision to donate what we could at those times, we formed these partnerships. And Tannis actually started another pantry distribution point here at the farm. So she would go to Honesdale, pick up some of the staple items of, you know, rice and all the shelf stable things. And we would add in vegetables into the box. And then people here in Damascus could come and pick food up. That was, again, a response to the, the, the crisis of last year. Now, what happened, which was really cool, is that after that initial time where we were donating produce, the county actually came up with funding to continue. Okay. And so then we, through the entire season, right up until I think our last delivery was November, maybe even December, we were providing vegetables to all of the food pantry pickups throughout all of Wayne County. And they were purchasing it at wholesale prices. So it was such a huge win-win. So so our fellow citizens of Wayne County were getting fresh local organic produce and, and we were getting paid a a fair wholesale price for it. That's incredible. So do you see that as something then that will continue? So it actually shifted the framework for how, how both people can access your organic produce and how you can sustain your business. Yeah, absolutely. It it really seems like it's going to happen. I want to give a a shout out to the person that really made that happen too, Jane Bollinger 
who is a really strong organizer in, uh, in food system issues here in Wayne County. And she really was the one that made the connection with the county kind of side of it for sourcing and payment and all of that stuff. And because of her efforts, you know, we, the, the logistics of it were great because she was really taking point on it. And the relationship was established. And, and the last conversation that we had, it seems like we'll be able to continue that in, uh, in this next growing season, which we're excited about. So the, the crisis actually has now created something very positive in a shift in the local food system. Yeah. And I, I also want to highlight, it was really important for us last year for that, that new outlet to develop because one of our challenges last, I mean, everything was, was right all over the place for everyone last year, ourselves included. We, in the beginning of the season, we weren't sure what was going to be happening with farmers markets, where they're going to be allowed. I actually, Sabrina, just this morning was cleaning my desk and I came across this notebook from last April. Yes. There's that much stuff on my desk. I can relate. Uh, and uh, in that notebook, was my emergency plan for 2020. So that was looking at what happens if farmers markets get shut down, because at that point it was not clear. You know, there was a moment last spring where uh, Governor Cuomo was saying we should shut down all farmers markets and throughout all of New York State and New York City. So we really did not know what was happening. As it turns out, all farmers markets stayed open. Every single farmers market that I was a part of, the organizers, and the vendors made a huge, huge effort to create a safe shopping experience for customers. Uh, that included spacing vendors out at market, limiting the number of customers allowed in market, uh, maintaining social distancing within stalls, having hand sanitizer and gloves, and of course, everybody wearing masks. All of it was more work. There were lines all over the place. It was slow. It was kind of painful. But... Customers came to trust that we were doing the right thing. And more often, more frequently, we would hear thanks from customers mm -hmm. for creating that safe shopping experience. Farmers markets across the country really, really quickly figured out how to make it a, a safe experience and it worked. So farmers markets were good for us last year. Um, but our wholesale trade suffered dramatically. We work with a lot of restaurants doing direct wholesaling both in Wayne County and Sullivan County and, and a larger volume in Metro New York City. So last year, our restaurant sales were 5% of the year before. That's a pretty big shift in a, in a short amount of time. And one thing that helped, uh, helped pick up some of that slack was uh, selling to the Wayne County food pantries. That's incredible to learn of what you were facing. Greg, what's... Are you looking at now uh, coming into 2021, the farm season for you? You've been farming since 2000 at this point. So what keeps you going and what are some of your visions for the future? And, and I have to add, uh -oh. please add in, you're growing this beautiful, nutrient-rich produce. So some of those favorites too, because as you said, an important part of what you do is you're growing food that also creates pleasure. So it's feeding us, it's feeding people. It's also creating enjoyment and pleasure while doing so. I'll take first a, a little, a little uh, glimpse of what I see for 2021. I feel more confident at this time of this spring, as opposed to last spring, I know the farmers markets are, um, you know, are secure that we're going to, we're going to have that. Um, uh, I am not sure what will happen wholesale wise. It seems like restaurants are opening back up, but I'm, I'm also hoping that they don't open up too quickly and then get shut down again for the growing season. Of course, I am optimistic that, uh, that we'll have good weather and, that everything will work out because if I didn't, I wouldn't be a farmer. <laughs> um, you know, that saying of hope springs eternal, right? It's, you know, emphasis on spring. <laughs> and what else, you know, we're going to, we, we have, a, have an exciting crop plan for the year. And, and I feel like every year that we do this, we get better at it. And, um, and so, yeah, I'm very excited for this coming season. 
is there one one vegetable or one herb or one plant that you're the most excited about, either to eat yourself or to share with us? Only one? Okay, let's have more than one. Okay. How about I'll do one from each season? Okay. All right. I'm very excited about asparagus. We, uh, we planted an asparagus patch about five years ago, so we're actually really into, into production now. And that is just one of, the, one of the most exciting spring treats is to go out there and pick some asparagus and munch it right there. Or if I'm uh, patient enough to, to bring it back home and throw it on the grill for a few minutes and eat it that way. Um, moving into, into summer, I have to say, you mentioned this one earlier, is uh, shishito peppers are, are awfully fun. For those folks that don't know what shishito peppers are, it's a Japanese variety of pepper that's very small, kind of bite-sized. One in 10 of the peppers have some heat to them. The rest just have a really nice uh, nice pepper flavor to it. And the best way to prepare those is to um, get a cast iron pan nice and hot with some oil and salt and just blister them in that uh, in that pan and then, uh, and then munch on it and, and may- maybe share some with Sabrina. Yes, I'm obsessed. My middle name is Shishido. <laughs> <laughs> and then looking to fall, uh, hands down, my favorite would be Radicchio. Mm. Um, we have uh, have really kind of gone on this uh, this adventure uh, of learning more and more about uh, about radicchio. John Bachman, who's uh, one of my partners in crime here on the farm, and I have a have a deep love and fascination with eating it. And now we're getting better and better each year growing it because there are so many different varieties of radicchio to grow. So we grow many many of them and and keep trying to get better at it and source seed for for different varieties. And so that's uh, that's our, that's my, my favorite fall one. Mm. Oh my goodness. Well, I look forward to coming to the farm and, and uh, meeting these plants uh, <laughs> as, as they're growing and being harvested. So Greg, I'm wondering if there's anything you'd like to conclude with. Well, I guess just to pick up one thread of what you were saying before about, you know, what, what were some of the things that happened last year and that we learned about last year with, with COVID and, and you kind of alluded to it too, is the is the fragility of our food system. You know, it's not so much the fragility of the production system, but it's the fragility of the distribution system. When any one thing can uh, throw a monkey wrench in distribution, all of a sudden we see empty shelves in grocery stores. Um, about 10 years ago, I saw this study. I don't know if it still holds true, uh, but that at any one time in Metro New York City, there's three weeks worth of food in the metro area. So we saw one type of dis- disruption to the distribution system last year with COVID, but there are so many other types of disruptions that can come, whether that be the disruption of the supply of, of fuel, whether that be war, whether whatever, there's so many pieces to that distribution system that, that could really be problematic. So as we look at what we mean by sustainability, one of the pieces should be what we what food supply looks like. And the most secure way is, you know, to, is to have a regionalized production system. I'm not saying never have, you know, stuff from the rest of the country or the rest of the world, but but there's there's much more security in having a regional production system. Um, and of course, the corollary to that is it's extremely important to our local economy to have a more robust farming sector, you know, the, the, to have a reinvigoration of our farming sector in this economy is, it, it's, in my opinion, that's really our path forward. When we talk about local economic development in this area, yes, tourism is important. I don't, I don't deny that at all, but the other piece, and they're actually related, the other piece really is to go with our strengths, to evaluate our natural resources to take advantage and protect those natural resources. And agriculture is the perfect fit. Absolutely. Thank you so much, Greg. It's always wonderful to speak with you. I learned so much and I I look forward to having a visit this spring at your farm. My pleasure, Sabrina. Well, we welcome you anytime. Thank you. I've been speaking with Greg Swartz, 
from Will-O-Wisp Organic Farm. To learn more about Greg and his team and Will-O-Wisp Organic Farm, please visit willowwisporganic.com. From the kitchen table, out on the road, I'm Sabrina Artell. Thanks for joining me for Sabrina Artell's Trailer Talk. The music for the show, Patti Smith, People Have the Power. Trailer Talk is produced by Sabrina Artell. For more information, please visit trailertalk.net. Special thanks to WJFF Radio Catskill and the numerous people who have donated their time, resources, and conversations to make Trailer Talk possible. Thank you all who joined me in these conversations. I'm Sabrina Artell. Safe travels. Support for WJFF Radio Catskill comes from the River Reporter newspaper in Narrowsburg, New York, riverreporter.com, and from listener donations at wjffradio.org. I listen to Bullseye so that I can pretend that I actually know what's going on in the culture and find bands and books and movies and music I love. Thanks. I'm Jesse Thorne. This week, I'll talk with rapper and television host Killer Mike, half of the hip-hop group Run the Jewels, plus writer and director Adam McKay. That's on the next Bullseye from MaximumFun.org and NPR. Thursday afternoon at 2 on Radio Catskill. Support comes from the Women's Health Center in Honesdale, Hamlin, Waymart, Carbondale, and Lords Valley in Pennsylvania. Physicians and certified midwives who deliver. The Women's Health Center is a Wayne Memorial Community Health Center. WMH.org. Welcome to Sabrina Artel's Trailer Talk. I'll bring you all kinds of stories from all kinds of people. Whether it's a live public conversation and we're speaking from the kitchen table of my 1965 Beeline Travel Trailer, from the studios or on the streets, please sit back and enjoy the conversation right here this time every week. I am here at my house uh, just outside of the Village of Liberty. And we are overlooking my pond. And at the end of the pond, there's a marshland, a, a bog. And I'm here with our local herpetologist, Bill Cutler, who will be speaking with us about amphibians and reptiles. And we're actually here in a uh, peeperless evening. The peepers have not appeared. It's early evening, six o'clock, and it is a little windy and a little chilly. And today was sunny. So Bill Cutler has been explaining to me that this might be why the peepers are quiet. There's not a peep from the peepers yet. Not yet. We'll we'll see what happens. We may get lucky here in a little bit. We'll see what uh, what comes out. So we're going to walk through the woods around the edge of the pond, and I'll then hand it over to Bill Cutler, and, and he'll explain what we're looking for. So we're now walking through the woods, which I always love to do. And I don't know if they're up yet. We could look, but I have some beautiful pink ladies. Lady slipper orchids that Terrific. have been, right, have been coming up. We kind of have to see it's this, right around these trees here okay. in the woods. And I, are you seeing any? Usually there are about five or six of them that come up right at the base of these trees right around here. Bean orchids, they depend on other microorganisms in the soil. And uh, generally, and this is a generalization, but sometimes it holds true. Orchids, like the pink lady slipper, tend to like acid-rich soil, such as might be found under a hemlock forest like this. And uh, the presence of the very low pH acidic soils with the beneficial microbes really facilitates their growth. It's a kind of a unique flower. Orchids are actually one of the largest groups of flowering plants on planet Earth. They're monocots, but they're not always found. They've really been picked uh, picked to the extreme limits back in the, the earlier part of the 20th century. So their numbers are really reduced and they're really great to find. They take forever, it seems, to really repopulate an area. So that you have a few here is wonderful. That, that'll, that's really a good sign that this is a healthy ecosystem. Bill, you lead the way. We're on the edge of the pond. I'm not sure where you want to go. So many places to look at and see here. Just beautiful. Maybe we'll find some things to turn over. If you notice, under this, this beautiful hemlock canopy that we're under right now, nice springiness underfoot, you'll see lots of green dropped hemlock twigs. And I bet if we take a close look, yep, sure enough, these twigs have probably been nibbled by porcupines this past winter. Generally, porcupines will, will stake out a cluster of hemlock trees, and uh, they'll actually patrol that as a territory. They're, they're very possessive of their hemlocks, and they'll, they'll depend on this as a food source. 
So porcupines are native mammals and certainly our hemlocks are, are native conifers. And uh, here again, we've got a, another part of the diversity of the ecosystem here. Once walking through these woods, through the hemlock forest, I looked up and I saw a baby porcupine oh, up in the great. tree. They are incredible animals and I love watching them. They're great. They uh, generally will produce only one baby a year. Uh, females and uh, there's a, a whole natural protective system when the female gives birth to her baby to protect her because the, the quills in a baby porcupine are loaded and ready. Uh, they can be deployed very soon after birth so mom has to have a, a special protective lining in her reproductive tract to facilitate the birth of that baby porcupine. They're, they're really tremendous. That is amazing. Bill Cutler, how did you become interested in this animal world around us, I know your specialty is the reptile and the amphibian world uh, as a herpetologist, but you have so much knowledge about the plants and about other kinds of beings that we're coexisting with. Gosh, first and foremost, I had terrific parents that put up with lots of my shenanigans as a kid. I was always out trying to get wet and dirty and, and cause as much grief and trouble as I possibly could and learn as much as I could about wildlife. And certainly through high school, they really encouraged me to pursue natural sciences as a career. And uh, eventually then at Binghamton University, I, I did some more of that and just love it to this day. By day, I, I work as a recycling coordinator for Sullivan County, but certainly my other passions in addition to that are the natural world around us, which seems to be shrinking. We're losing ground on planet Earth, unfortunately, and it's so nice to have little spots like this left in our region that we can look to and find a lot of the natural assemblages of plants and animal communities that, that are native that belong here and that we're actually the, the newcomers too. We're just joining the party, so to speak, but all this was here long before we were. It's just wonderful. And Bill, we really are facing such a challenge right now on this planet that has been here at this point billions of years, but it's really at a stress point. And certainly here in this region, in Sullivan County, we're facing a lot of development, shrinking open space, a real threat to wildlife corridors, to even the ability to produce food. I mean, so from all sides with this, and here we are, this is private land. It's, you know, we're in the Hemlock Forest, and, and this is open space right here outside the village and town of Liberty. How important are these spaces for wildlife, for ourselves? What's your opinion on this? These spaces are absolutely critical to survival of, of all life, including human life. The, the interconnectedness of all things, uh, kind of an indirect quote from Rachel Carson, um, one of my, my favorite uh, scientists, really kind of underlines how much of a part of the world all this has to work together to be. And it also underlines how important it is, even for private landowners, to protect the small wet spots maybe in their backyards, the ephemeral pools that salamanders depend on for survival. And the corridors, the small corridors, sometimes only a few feet wide, that are tracts of clear land that may not have a car traveling over them too frequently. Uh, that facilitates the, the conduit of these different wetland systems and woodlands, and it allows animals especially to move between them freely, and that's really very critical. If we choke down the supply or the population of an area of animals generally, what will happen over time, if there's not an adequate genetic replacement to that stock, that population will plummet. And once it's gone, it, it's very hard to recover that area. And uh, certainly we've seen by creating natural park systems and wetlands or recreating them, it takes lots of money and lots of effort by many trained people. And uh, I just think that this is a way to empower individuals at the, at the property owner level to be able to do something. Uh, certainly you have a beautiful spot here. And if, if you can work as friends with your neighbors and see to it that parcels like this can remain connected to one another, there's room for everybody. Humans can exist and the wildlife here can, can adapt and do what it needs to do to survive as well. And now we're walking towards the edge of the pond, the far edge of it, and uh, there are a lot of moss-covered rocks and the pond is quite shallow here and moves from pond into marshland. And Bill is lifting up a rock. I have to apologize. I'm, I'm somewhat rather clumsy. It's not uncommon for me to go headfirst into the drink, so I apologize for any strange splashing noises momentarily. What I'm looking for here is spotted salamander. This is the type of clear pond Probably not a lot of fish here in this pond, although maybe some, that spotted salamanders, one of our largest salamanders in Sullivan County and in New York State, would choose to lay their eggs in. 
They're an explosive breeder, and they'll generally mate in early spring, the third or fourth warm, rainy night of spring, generally above 50 degrees Fahrenheit, brings out a mass migration of spotted salamanders. And they'll make almost a direct beeline from where they hang out in the woods around the ponds directly into the ponds where they'll seek mates and they'll lay uh, clusters of eggs, usually in the hundreds. And are these spotted salamanders those beautiful translucent orange ones or these another kind? No, these are great big black salamanders with fluorescent yellow spots on top, generally six to eight inches in length. They're a beefy salamander. And when you find one, you think, holy smokes, this is really a salamander. I know what this is. <laughs> They're called mole salamanders because they actually live underground during 99% of the year in mole burrows. And you really never find them, except now during the reproductive season, where they might be out close to the water's edge. And we'll just kind of look around here. Maybe we'll get lucky and, and pull one up. What I'm doing is, is carefully putting back what I just pulled over, because this rusty old tire rim is now habitat this could very well be a hiding spot for something. So as part of it's now part of the natural world, we're just gonna leave it here and uh, kind of reseed it as best we can. That'll allow things to move back in underneath undisturbed. In past years, at the very end over there, I have seen thousands of eggs. That sounds like that many eggs close together could be spotted salamander eggs, but most likely it's gonna be wood frogs. Wood frogs are the very first frogs of spring that also breed explosively in Sullivan County. And uh, sometimes I get, uh, get phone calls from folks that think they have a, a, a flock of ducks that have landed on their ponds at night. And why the devil would these ducks be calling at night? Well, of course, ducks are, are not calling at night. They're hunkered down for the evening. And uh, what folks are hearing are wood frogs, Rana sylvatica. And that's their reproductive call. They sound much like ducks quacking. Their Latin name, genus and species, Rana, is a, a classic genus of frogs in the New World. And uh, their species name, their specific name, Sylvatica, is elf-like or spirit-like in the woods. Because you don't see them? No. <laughs> you know, I have never seen a peeper. I have not seen a wood frog. I have not seen a leopard frog if they're around here. I have from time to time seen a frog swimming along the edges of the pond about maybe uh, four or so inches long, brownish hue with black stripes. I'm not sure what frog that might have been. And I've seen toads here, but I have not seen the frogs, I don't think, that are making these amazing sounds that you're describing. Now, a few days ago, we're right at the very last day of April right now, a few days back, before I, what I think were the peepers starting, which are that high whistling sound, there was singing of frogs that was a little bit deeper, like you're describing, like the ducks. Okay. That most likely was the wood frogs. Uh, we have several ranids that occur in this area. Uh, in addition to wood frogs, uh, bullfrogs as well. Leopard frogs are, are very much less common. It seems like we've seen a population crash of leopard frogs in New mm -hmm. York State. They have been charted in the Herp Atlas Project in New York State in the 1990s, but I've found them to be extremely uncommon. My last uh, chance to really study them closely was when I was a child growing up in Circleville in Orange County, and I've, as yet I haven't found any here in Sullivan County all these years later. So I'm, I'm not sure they're, they're here. I know some people have found them, but I haven't been able to find them myself. One concern may involve overcollection of leopard frogs. In the 1950s, 60s, and 70s, uh, regrettably in high school biology programs around the country, kids were actually paid to collect leopard frogs for the dissection labs. It's a pretty horrific ending for a frog, but more importantly, it may have resulted in an actual population crash. Certainly not extinction, but uh, in terms of biologists' warning signs, that's usually a big one. That's a species that probably will be able to recover unless there's some other factors we haven't really looked at yet. But we just need to give them time. We need to stop over-collecting them or collecting them at all at this point and uh, just allow their numbers to return to what, uh, what might be termed normal by the environment. And what about these peepers. Let's take the peepers and the wood frogs that you were talking about. I look forward to the beginning of their mating and their songs and the peepers become this wave of incredible song that for me is the start of spring. If I don't hear the peepers, I don't care what date it is, it's not spring. And you know, a friend and I here in the neighborhood will call each other when we hear the peepers. And I am absolutely thrilled when I hear the frogs for the first time in the season. And I'm concerned about what we're hearing about the decline in population, 
about really what's happening throughout the animal kingdom. What is your opinion about the frogs? What's going on and what do you think it represents and how concerned should we really be about this? Well, Sabrina, we should be very concerned. Worldwide, there's been an, a noted 33% decline in amphibian populations worldwide. That's a huge number. Uh, in the past 20 years, it's been charted that about 176 species of amphibians worldwide out of possibly 6,000 have gone extinct. And that really, for a 20- or 30-year observation window, is a catastrophic loss. Uh, we talk about, in biology, extinctions in terms of thousands or hundreds of thousands or millions of years. And to see a, a, a large assemblage of frog populations plummet like that is, is worrisome. And uh, the unfortunate quick answer to why this is occurring is we just don't know yet fully. There is a worldwide and declining amphibians task force that's being coordinated by the Society for the Study of Amphibians and Reptiles, uh, to which I'm a member. And this group worldwide is a group of perhaps five or 6,000 herpetologists that are keeping an eye out and trying to figure out what's happening to our worldwide amphibians. We haven't seen perhaps any, any real big population changes that I've observed in Sullivan County in, in perhaps the last 20 or 30 years, but it seems to be several things are happening globally. Uh, number one, there's been an increase in a specific type of fungus that may have been spread unintentionally by the release of African clawed frogs from research institutes in the 1930s through 1960s. Uh, this fungus called a chytrid is native to Africa where the African clawed frogs also occur. And when we take these frogs and then we inadvertently release them, maybe uh, unfortunately out the back window of a science lab someplace, those frogs can certainly survive, and as all introduced species can do, they can affect other populations. Mm. And this fungus that they may also be carrying seems to be implicated in at least some cases of amphibian decline worldwide. Uh, there's many factors, though. Uh, it's been postulated that the changes in the Earth's ozone layer may be affecting ultraviolet radiation penetrating the atmosphere and affecting the survival of amphibian eggs in shallow waters like this pond without the shade of these trees direct ultraviolet radiation may actually cook the eggs and and cause them not to develop or to develop improperly as embryos and bill you began sharing with us that as a child you became very interested in the animal world and in going out into your backyard into different areas of uh, the catskills here in orange county what is it specifically about the amphibians and the reptiles that you are drawn to and uh, that you are continuing to gather knowledge about this world? As a child in Houston would go around at night and I would see how many toads I could find just in the neighborhoods because uh, there there were so many toads and also the uh, chameleons. Yeah. You know, so there were just so many of those. And then in Los Angeles, we had these desert mm -hmm. lizards. They looked very prehistoric and kind of thick skin, kind of brownish, black in color. And they, they lived in the backyards, nice. which was really amazing. For you, why herpetology? <laughs> I get asked that question a lot. <laughs> it's kind of hard to meet people, too, sometimes that don't share a similar hobby, if you will. But I guess what got me started was probably the, the perceived ick factor. I just thought it was cool that so many people were afraid of or disliked something that I really found interesting. And I guess my curiosity level is really facilitated by my parents. Uh, they, they were my, my dad was a teacher and my mom was a nurse. So there was always this uh, kind of scientific approach in the household about discovery and finding out things in the backyard and bringing them in. And now I've actually had the chance going through public school to, to encounter science textbooks that made reference to, I remember my fifth grade science textbook, regrettably, that uh, made a note that uh, probably students would never have a chance to discover their own species of plant or animal, and that we seem to already have a lot of knowledge about uh, the world around us already, and that science was perhaps going to go in a laboratory-based direction. Perhaps my... Uh, the side of me that said, no, that's not right. There's so much we don't know yet kicked in. And I just kept my curiosity going. And uh, for a message for our young listeners out there certainly would be, there's so many unknowns. You need to stay in school and uh, with your parents' permission, and please ask them first, head outside to the local swamp and get wet. Find things, discover things, and get on the Internet. Do some research. Head down to the library and learn some more. 
because for all you learn and know, there's a million things that you have not yet discovered, and you might be the very one student here from Sullivan County that makes a big breakthrough. Keep doing it. So what here, Bill, we're in the eastern part of Sullivan County in Liberty. What is in these woods and in this water, possibly? What kind of wildlife are we talking about? You mentioned the spotted salamander, which I didn't know about, and now I'm going to start to look for. And then there are the small translucent orange. Are they newts? or You're probably seeing red efts, which are actually newt teenagers. Uh, newts go through a three-phase life cycle. They start out as an egg and an aquatic greenish, kind of an olive drab larva with external gills uh, up to about an inch long. When they're two or three years old, they'll metamorphose into a terrestrial fluorescent orange juvenile. They're still not sexually mature yet, however, so they move back out into the woodlands, and after a nice warm spring rain, it's not uncommon to be able to walk out in the woods and see these fluorescent orange critters walking around. The only caution there is that bright orange coloration is actually a warning sign, and it's in biological terms, it's called posmatism, uh, or cryptic coloration that is bright enough to elicit a warning response. And that aposmatic coloration uh, should be a warning. And in fact, these newts can be poisonous to cats and, and dogs if they're actually ingested. So they're also very distasteful. So the, the first warning is, if it tastes bad, don't eat it and spit it out if you're a cat or a dog. But more importantly, that color is necessary for their survival. And uh, as they mature and become sexually mature adult salamanders, they lose that bright orange protective coloration again. And they head back into a fully aquatic adult life cycle where mm. they stay for the rest of their days as an olive drab, four-inch long salamander. I'll have to look out for those too because I see them in that teenage body and not in the adult body. Sure. So now I have to start looking for them. And uh, what else is probably living here. Wow, there's so much here. There's perhaps 40 to 43 species of reptiles and amphibians in Sullivan County, and um, I haven't found them all myself yet. I'm still looking. I found them in some in other counties, but not all here yet. So the, the, the mystery is, how do they all interrelate together? And, and how do they, what part of the ecosystem niche do they represent? And just in a small area like this, we've just discussed a few, but we could expect, I see some sphagnum moss here, which is an indication that perhaps four-toed salamanders are here, hemidactylum scutatum. Uh, there could definitely be around the house, I'm going to guess, eastern milk snakes, garter snakes, northern water snakes probably here in the pond. Maybe you've seen ringnecks or red-bellied snakes, perhaps a smooth green snake out in the, the grassier areas out front just on snakes. Turtles, I would expect snappers maybe in here, perhaps painted turtles. Wood turtle wouldn't be uncommon at all. Stink pot, maybe. Which is, uh... <laughs> okay, well, okay, let's find out more about the stink pot. Right. Well, stink pots are great turtles. They're four to five inches long, and they're aptly named. Uh, the, the more conventional name is eastern musk turtle, but I like stink pot myself, and that's more indicative of what they do. They have some really nasty scent glands at the bases of their hind legs, which as a, as a deterrent to predators, they'll musk this terrible odor out when you pick them up. And that's enough usually to make you drop them on the spot and leave them alone. <laughs> don't, don't mess around with those. <laughs> They're real fun turtles. Last late spring, early summer, I saw a snapping turtle making its way actually on the grass outside my house and then climb down the rock wall into this pond, dove in, and that was the last I saw of that turtle. It was amazing. And once, many years ago, I saw a beautiful turtle, much, much smaller than... I think I hear it. I hear a spring peeper. Okay. My apologies to the listening audience. Here it goes. a little artificial sound clip of a spring peeper. We've got one that's returning a call back here across the pond. That frog was uh, definitely responding to you. Biologists always look for ways to classify things and pigeonhole species and putting them together with interrelated characteristics. And spring peepers are, are one of those frog groups that forever, it seems, have been called tree frogs. You know, we think of spring peepers because they have sticky disks on their toes as tree frogs. Well, in the 1980s, herpetologists got together and started thinking about this in a little more detail. And they said, you know what? We've got all these groups of western frogs that we call chorus frogs that also have the sticky toe discs. 
and look and act and genetically seem just like spring peepers. So why don't we reclassify them? So in the 1980s, biologists changed the classification, the naming system for this frog. It formerly was called Hyla crucifer. Hyla is a group of, of uh, it's a name that kind of relates to tree frogs. And they assigned a, a different genus name, Sudacris. And that refers more appropriately to chorus frogs. So our spring peepers are not tree frogs at all. They're actually chorus frogs. And that, that massive calling that you'll hear that's deafening and, and almost makes it impossible to, to really locate a specific frog in the pond is, is because they are chorus frogs and they are calling together, which also kind of deters predators. You can't echolocate. You can't pick one out really well unless you're really good and, and hone right in on it. So we just heard one, and like you just said, there there will be soon, later tonight, there will be a chorus, just a wall of the sound of these peepers, the chorus frogs. Where are they? What Are they in the water? Are they in the trees? What do they look like? I mean, they've, all, they've been a complete mystery to me. Well, Sabrina, these little noisemakers are only about an inch long, and they're very cryptically colored, a very light brown, almost a coppery brown with a kind of a jagged, nondistinct, darkish X on their backs. And being that they're only an inch long, it's amazing to think that they can make so darn much racket. <laughs> they can really get going. And uh, if we have a chance to see one right now, they're probably hunkered down at the water level in these little tussocks and tufts of grass and vegetation. They will ascend into trees, and you'll sometimes hear spring peepers in the fall calling. And it's not really known why. So this is another great mystery. If there's any burgeoning scientists out there, you might want to think about maybe a master's thesis or a Ph.D. dissertation on why do spring peepers head up into the trees in the fall and call sporadically. It's really not known. And, Bill, where do they go in the winter? So they've just reappeared this spring. Where have they been? And then where do they go? Because I only hear them. I will listen this fall. I've not noticed that in the fall but uh, I'm curious what their cycle is and how long do they live and that sort of thing. Their, their lifespan is reasonably short, unfortunately. They probably survive four to five to six years, I think would be a comfortable estimate. Being that they're small, they've, they've got a pretty high turnover rate. In ecology, we talk about things uh, in terms of demonstrating populations as case-selected or R-selected traits. And this is an older term, but it still has some merit. K-selected traits in biology refer to quality-based assessments. R-selected traits tend to focus on quantity. Now, spring peepers, being that they're pretty ubiquitous, there's lots of them, they tend to be more of those R-selected type animals where they, they have a high turnover rate, they produce lots of young, and lots of them get eaten, but there's always some left to survive and carry on. A K-selected organism might be a good example would be a human where there's lots of maternal care, uh, mom puts lots of energy into raising the young, only a few young are produced, and uh, that forms the basis of that population group, that family unit. Uh, frogs, of course, don't have family units, but being that they, they have such a large population range, they can really spread out and, and be exploit all kinds of habitats, I guess is the best way to say it. Let's take a walk over here. Maybe we can get a look at some stuff. We're at the water's edge, and I would guess probably within a 10-foot radius around us. There's perhaps five or six spring peepers. And in a few hours when it's dark, if the wind dies down a little bit, they'll be out in mass. They'll be calling like crazy. If we get lucky, maybe we'll just scare one up and get a chance to look at it firsthand. This is interesting. These are wood frog eggs here, Sabrina. And they have that kind of jelly-like mass. If you can imagine, uh, for our radio listeners, uh, perhaps a six-inch ball of jelly, clear jelly, with little larval salamanders inside. These are fertilized eggs. They're developing. They're embryos at this point. And uh, in these jelly masses, there's perhaps two or three hundred embryos that are developing. These will hatch out in the warm sun of the spring wetland here in the next week or two. And the larval salamanders will then work their way out into this wetland. They're, they're grazers. They're herbivores at this stage in their lives. And they'll munch on algae and things like that that are present in the water. There are many of them. I'm looking out that direction too. They're masses of these eggs. You said these are... These are wood frog eggs here. There's lots of biology that actually occurs in these jelly masses as well. There are unique species of algae that will colonize these egg masses and it forms the first basis, the first meal if you will, for some of these larval frogs and, and salamanders and toads that will come out 
in the spring. And wood frogs, of course, uh, are not salamanders, of course. Their tadpoles are going to work on munching off those algae that are living in the egg masses. That gives them their first meal, and then they, as they get bigger, they can work on larger things in the pond. Let's continue wandering through the woods. I want to thank you so much for sharing all of this wonderful knowledge that you have about our Sullivan County wildlife. I've been speaking with Bill Cutler, our local amphibian and reptile expert. We're here in Liberty, New York, at my house. From the kitchen table, out on the road, I'm Sabrina Artell. Thanks for joining me for Sabrina Artell's Trailer Talk. The music for the show, Patti Smith, People Have the Power. Trailer Talk is produced by Sabrina Artell.